I'm Greg Dalton. Today's program is underwritten by Bank of the West. From coast to coast and everywhere in between, the oceans play a bigger role in our climate and culture than we often realize. I think a lot of people across the country feel like going to the ocean and the coast is the part of their culture and a part of their family and isn't a right. Sarah Amanzade is commissioner of the California Coastal Commission. Her agency's mission is to make the coast a place for everyone to enjoy and to do so responsibly, which can also encourage innovative solutions from the private sector. We're looking at all these entrepreneurs who know they want to help change the planet. They want to help the ocean. Daniela Fernandez is founder and CEO of the Sustainable Ocean Alliance, a global organization that helps young entrepreneurs create startups that have a positive impact on oceans. And the oceans need all the help they can get right now. Almost all of the carbon dioxide that we emit through fossil fuel burning eventually winds up in the ocean. Ken Caldera is a climate scientist with the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford. I began our conversation by asking him how our understanding of oceans and climate has changed over the last several decades. In the 1980s, when I was a graduate student, it was considered a good thing that the oceans were absorbing both heat and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere because that was slowing climate change in the atmosphere and on land. And it was only several decades later that it really became understood that this heating of the ocean was damaging to marine life. Uh, coral reefs are the most obvious example. And then also the carbon dioxide, when it's absorbed by the ocean, uh, acidifies the ocean. And that's also harmful to marine life. And so what was once thought of as a, a service that the ocean was providing to humans is now seen a, 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 as something damaging that humans are doing to the ocean. And we'll get into that a little more later. Daniela Fernandez, you say plastics are a gateway drug for understanding, uh, uh, getting involved in the oceans. Tell us about that gateway drug, the straw. They really are. When you think about the ocean, you don't necessarily associate yourself with the ocean. And people think that it's the trees and the forests that provide all the oxygen. But the reality is that the ocean affects and impacts all of us. Even if you're living in the middle of uh, the United States, even if you're living in a hut <laughs> where you may never see the ocean, it truly is our life support. And so when I talk about plastic as being a gateway drug, it means that it's something so tangible that we can see, we can touch, and that we use on every single day basis. The, the lifespan of a plastic bag is 12 minutes. And when you think about that, it means that you use a plastic bag to go grocery shopping. And the next thing you know, it's out in the garbage or in the landfill or it's in the ocean. And so it's un really understanding the ocean problem and making it relatable to every person out there and not just making it seem as if it's, you know, this distant um, ecosystem that we don't relate to. Sarah Amanzada, you think that plastics, uh, straws and bags are kind of a distraction, that they get perhaps too much attention in the ocean conversation. I don't know if I would say they get too much attention, but I guess I would say that I think a sole focus on plastics issues, for for example, and a bag ban and a straw ban, all of which I worked on in, in my previous life, so it's critical, um, but can feel like a total solution when the issues are much larger. And so I, I worry to some extent that celebrities or you know some aspects of our culture who want to engage in environmental issues feel that um, they've made a difference, so to speak, by um, 
focusing solely on a relatively small problem, which is huge. I, I care about those issues. I worked on the California's plastic bag ban for eight years myself. But um, I, I want to be sure that in our culture where there are these short media bites and these short clips and everything is sort of immediate, that people don't lose sight of the larger and more complex issues that we really have to grapple with about, about both climate change and the ocean. And Ken Caldera, you think that, uh, you know, sort of a, a fetish on straws or bags can actually backfire in middle America by telling Nebraskans that they, they know how they're going to drink their iced tea. Yes, I, I'm concerned, obviously, about turtles and other sea life that are swallowing plastics and getting damaged by these, and that's a serious problem that we need to address. But I think we need to think about long-term political strategy and, you know, is I'm worried about sort of the heart of Trump country in the middle of America taking away straws and plastic bags from people. Are they going to say, look, this is uh, these coastal liberals taking things away from us? And so we, I think we need to be thoughtful both in environmental protection and also in political strategy. We're going to turn to another area where there's some uh, creative solutions uh, being approached on, on the oceans. It's hard to imagine that 50 years ago, the town of Cancun didn't even exist. Beginning in 1970, the Mexican government and private investors worked to turn the idyllic tropical beach into a tourism mecca. But among other environmental oversights, the world-renowned coral reefs off the coast of Cancun weren't given much thought or protection. To try and slow the deterioration of the reefs, in 2010, a collection of sculptures was placed on the seafloor nearby. The idea of this underwater museum was to draw some of the 750,000 annual snorkelers and scuba divers away from the fragile reef systems. While the underwater museum has drawn about a quarter of those tourists away, it's questionable whether it's actually helping the reefs. We spoke with Dr. Susana Enriquez, a researcher at Mexico's National Institute of Ocean Sciences and Liminology. Well, the underwater museum was a nice, uh, you know, alternative to, for visitors to having a nice day and diving there. And it's like uh, going to an exhibition of uh, nice sculptures in the bottom of the ocean. Has been great in terms of marketing, but never a way to resolve the problem of the reef. Because one of the things you see when you look at these uh, statues is that they are full of algae. And this is a sign of fertilization. They shouldn't be there. When we fertilize this habitat, we favor the organic growth in detriment of the mineral uh, you know, production. So we change the, the system. We, the system starts to accumulate a lot of biomass, organic uh, carbon. And then the community also changes. The opportunistic species are taking over the place in the northern part of the, of the state, in Cancun. Well, the situation in the seagrass bed is terrible. And also, you see already some effects in the coral community. In the 70s, the place is, was a paradise, was a beautiful, beautiful, magnificent place. The amount of touristic offer is huge, is too high, and was not uh, balanced with adequate control of uh, sewage and all these products of the city and, and hotels and the, there is no tertiary uh, treatment for this. So there's a huge fertilization of the ocean and then the, the level of uh, environmental deterioration is, is serious. The economical pressure is huge. 
the, the level of investment and of uh, the interest, the economical interest here is huge. So it's very difficult for any country, also for Mexico, to defend uh, their uh, you know, natural environment uh, from this pressure. That was Susana Riquez, an ocean science researcher at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Daniel, let's, let's ask you, because you work with a lot of entrepreneurs who are trying to develop profit motives to, uh, to uh, preserve uh, ocean resources. There's, you know, trying to kind of disney an area to try to lure people away to a certain area of the ocean. But is there really a profit motive in conservation with some of the entrepreneurs you're dealing with? You think it has to be profitable for it to be able to scale. And in the, in the capitalistic system that we live in, if we have a nonprofit, it's great. I mean, I run a nonprofit myself. <laughs> um, but when you look at the ecosystem of change, I mean, you really have to make sure that you invest money in ocean tech entrepreneurs and in helping them nourish their ideas. And just to give you some examples on the topics we've touched upon, one of our companies that we invested in um, this past summer uh, is called Lollywear, and they're creating straws out of seaweed. So the idea here is to replace plastic completely. And the seaweed straw would biodegrade in water in 18 hours as opposed to lasting a lifetime. And that's exactly the type of hope that we're trying to uh, you know, promote in, in, in this really doom and gloom scenario that we live in. Uh, another company um, is called Coral Vita, and they're changing the DNA cycle of corals so they can be more resistant to uh, warmer temperatures. So it's truly about getting young people globally to feel that they can have, they have responsibility, can take part in changing the ecosystem of the ocean, and making it profitable is the way to go. Straws from seaweed sounds interesting, but if that scales up, could there be a negative impact on the oceans with so much seaweed for straws, right? There's always kind of a shadow side to things, especially when they scale. Yeah, I mean, this company is using a sustainable uh, uh, seaweed farm in, in Norway, um, and seaweed is one of the, the algaes that grows the fastest, so obviously there's a concern there, but the phase two for this company is to grow in a lab. Um, so it's truly about using new technology, emerging tech and innovation to figure out how can we solve these problems so that we're not harming the environment, but rather we're in harmony with our planet um, and being profitable, but also in finding these you know, really exciting solutions. Ken Caldera, your thoughts on kind of you know innovation technology to have harness the profit motive to perhaps displace ocean harmful products or to leverage the ocean in different ways? Uh, I guess I'm always a believer in a portfolio of approaches, and I think that better technology is essential in that, if, for example, if we can get better straws, better plastic bag replacements that are not deleterious to the oceans, that's good. But there's always this trade-off between somebody who can locally get some short-term gain and the damage that they create is socialized and spread out over long times in many people. And we need a regulatory environment uh, that prevents people from personalizing the benefits and socializing the damage. So, Daniela, when you look at companies, do you look at, I mean, because corporations are kind of externalizing machines, right? They consolidate profits and spread the costs widely sometimes. Are you looking at that when you invest in companies, whether they're trying to push the impact somewhere else? 
No, absolutely. We look at, first of all, at scalability. You know, does this model scale? Can it, you know, grow outside of your local community where uh, the company's from? Two is impact. What positive impact are you having in the ocean space, right? Um, we're looking at all these entrepreneurs who know they want to help change the planet. They want to help the ocean. And it's just a matter of understanding how their business model is so different than what the current system exists. I mean, I personally believe that our current governance system is absolutely broken. And that's why you have young people striking, you know, every Friday around the world, because we believe that our generation is inheriting this problem that we didn't cause. And it's, it's time for us to stop pointing the finger at corporations, to stop pointing the finger at government, and to take responsibility for everything that's happening in our ocean and our environment. And, and this entrepreneurship uh, passion, it's really a, a form of activating people and, and acting upon something that otherwise would just be a passive um, you know, blame in, in the system that is continuously just incessantly thinking about the other person instead of, you know, really taking ownership for that, for that problem yourself. Sarah, what are some of the most promising solutions that you see? Well, you know, I, th I think in a couple of buckets, I guess, so to speak, I think about policy ideas and solutions. I think about, um, investments, um, and financial changes. And I think about private sector partnerships. I think, um, there are a lot of promising policy solutions. California is actually innovating, one of the world's first ocean acidification action plans to look at ways to reduce the flow of pollution to the California coast, which exacerbates hypoxic conditions and um, can improve the health of the ocean and make it more resilient to climate-driven changes. Um, I think about investments as well, um, investments in um, scientific monitoring and analysis, investments in restoration. There's some preliminary evidence to suggest that um, planting seagrass can actually mitigate hypoxic conditions. Um, and I think about private sector partnerships. Um, for example, Hog, Hog Island Oyster Company, based here in California, um, is partnering with scientists who are measuring the impacts of um, ocean acidification and working to support aquaculture um, as a sustainable ocean industry that can hopefully thrive even in the face of climate change. So I think there are a lot of sort of big ideas and big solutions. It's really about creating the, the critical mass and the political momentum behind them and about putting people in office ultimately who are going to prioritize that. Um, we've seen, for example, the guns lobby make it a voting issue, um, you know, something that they feel affects their culture and their lifestyle and their families. Well, I think a lot of people in this room and across the country feel like going to the ocean and the coast is the part of their culture and a part of their family and isn't a right. And I would like to see a much more effective lobby effort where leaders and decision makers, the next president, uh, knows that they have to take action because it's something that their constituents are going to hold them accountable for. Once upon, once upon a time, there was an ocean, but now it's a mountain range. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about oceans and climate change. Coming up, the evolving threats to oceans and our own well-being. When you look at the amount of microfibers that end up in the ocean because of the clothes that you're using, this becomes not only an ocean-centric problem, but it's a human health issue. That's up next when Climate One continues.
We're talking about sustainable oceans at Climate One with Sarah Amanzade, Commissioner of the California Coastal Commission, Daniela Fernandez, founder and CEO of the Sustainable Ocean Alliance, and Ken Caldera, a climate scientist with the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. With so much of human life dependent on ocean life, I asked Ken Caldera what can be done to counter the market incentives that lead to overfishing. There are some positive examples of good fisheries management where you have an ability to exclude others and there's a relatively small group of people, but there, and also marine exclusion zones are another uh, approach. But, um, you know, these agreements are hard to develop, but they're essential. And uh, Sarah, your thoughts on terms of you know, using markets, you know, um, or changing markets for the, are you getting at some of the market incentives for, for extracting resources from the ocean? Yeah, I mean, I think there are different levels to it, as Ken alluded to. You know, there's obviously the major market changes that we need to see in terms of our energy, um, mm -hmm. whether we can move from fossil fuels to renewables. So that's perhaps one of the biggest market transformations that we need to see. And then, of course, there are market signals and transformations that we can incentivize in terms of how we're treating our ocean with respect to pollution flows and overfishing and shipping and things of that nature. So I think large scale market solutions can and need to be deployed to really address climate change impacts to the oceans. And there are multiple ways that we can get at it from personal use of sending a signal of whether or not to order that sushi in a restaurant um, I was just in the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and I was reminded of their seafood watch program, which is phenomenal. So the personal choices we make can send market signals. And then again, I think um, you know, putting leaders in place who are going to pass policies that urge more immediate and transformative uh, market solutions, I think, is important. But Ken Caldera, a lot of the oceans are governed by, you know, outside national jurisdictions, so that requires multilateral, so many, you know, UN kind of collaboration, which is notoriously slow. There is some movement, I guess, on the maritime industry to kind of, you know, clean up the fuel they use, to kind of be part. Aviation is another one, these kind of global industry that's kind of out of the reach of particular countries because their assets are so mobile. Is there any hope there that, that those international institutions will move fast enough to solve climate? Well... I think they have to, so let's just hope they will. I, I don't know if it's an expectation, but obviously in international waters, things are very difficult, and uh, even in national waters of, of countries that don't have much power, it's difficult for them to control their waters. You know, we've been treating the oceans as a resource that we're mining, and we're essentially just extracting things out of the ocean without thinking about sustainability. and really the mindset has to be that uh, this is an endowment that we have to pass on to future generations and that we can live off the interest, but we can't eat into the capital. And, you know, and, but how to actually do that in a policy framework uh, is beyond my expertise. Um, let's talk about offshore oil drilling, Sarah, in terms of, you know, most people are against that, certainly on the, on the, uh, on the West Coast are against it, even some people on the Atlantic Coast. Um, you know, we're in a situation now where they're trying to open that up. Um, you know, what are the really risks there in terms of, you know, offshore oil drilling, um, new production that can, that can happen, you know, forget the Arctic, you know, the, co the continental U.S.? Yeah, well, the risks are um, enormous. We've seen that here in California, both in San Francisco and Santa Barbara, of an oil spill. Um, and more fundamentally, I think the risks of perpetuating a fossil fuel-driven economy 
when we have renewable options um, is perilous. You know, California has been a leader on renewable energy and climate mitigation solutions. And so to even consider or accept um, opening up our offshore to, to oil drilling is um, preposterous. And I think you saw that reaction not only here in California, but across the country when the Trump administration sent signals that they would be considering that. You saw um, typically red states step up and say, not our coast, unacceptable, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, you saw California do that as well, um, both the Coastal Commission and a slew of businesses and organizations. Um, so I think, you know, there's the immediate implications of the potential for a spill from offshore drilling, but more fundamentally sending a signal to oil companies that they can continue that line of business in this time is, is truly ludicrous. Ken Caldera. Almost all of the carbon dioxide that we emit through fossil fuel burning eventually winds up in the ocean. And so all of that carbon coming out at oil, or the vast majority of it, will end up in the ocean. And, and so if we want to protect the oceans, we can't be expanding our fossil fuel industries. Daniela Fernandez, another thing that ends up in the, is the ocean are the fibers from synthetic clothing, which I learned uh, recently that when you wash uh, synthetic clothing, you put it in the dryer, there's some things that kind of end up in the oceans. I wonder whether any of your portfolio companies are looking at replacing microbeads or, or other types of clothing that doesn't kind of trickle into the ocean. Yeah, I think there's a really critical movement around sustainable fashion. And uh, millennials particularly are really interested in the, in the renting phenomenon, right? Instead of just buying all your clothes, why don't you rent them? I, mean, I think Rent the Runway has a great model, and there's others around there. Um, and when you look at the amount of microfibers that end up in the ocean because of the clothes that you're using, and everyone here is responsible for it. I mean, we all wash our clothes, they all end up in the ocean. And the... Ironic thing is that not only do these fibers end up in the ocean, but you're also ingesting them yourselves as you're eating fish, right? So this becomes not only an ocean-centric problem, but it's a human health issue that we have to be concerned about. So when we're thinking about you know, these systematic changes, we have to approach them with innovation, right? Like, why can't we create a, a washing machine that captures all these microfibers? That it's already a filter within, right? It doesn't exist yet. But you know, for us, putting this challenge out to our young community and saying, you know, who out there has an idea to build this new laundry machine? Then finding the right industry partners to help them you know, build out this, um, this machine and helping it scale. I think that's the type of mentality we have to start getting into. Because previous business models have been set up in, in a way where we don't care about the repercussions of what happens to the end product, right? And if we as human beings, no matter what role you have in your life, if, you, if you're a consumer, you pay with every dollar you spend, right? Whether you're spending it in a, a sustainable product or if you're you know, eating less meat, right? You're making a choice for the environment. If you're an investor, I mean, the money that you're putting into your portfolio matters and it matters where it goes, whether you're choosing those you know, stock options that ultimately end up supporting these fossil fuel companies or if you're helping you know, these, uh, these new type of companies uh, entrepreneurial uh, activities. So it's truly about um, understanding where our values lie and taking true responsibility to make our choices as consumers, as investors, as CEOs and leaders. I mean, I'm really proud that Bank of the West is sponsoring this event, and they're one of the only corporations that aren't saying, you know, by 2030, we are going to do X, Y, and Z, as many of them are. We, we don't have 
by 2030. We have the next 12 years to act on climate. David Attenborough in the series Our, Our, Our Planet that just came out on Netflix said, the next 10 years will determine the fate of our planet. I mean, just let that sit with you for a second. The next 10 years will determine what will happen to our oceans, to our forests, to every, every human being and every life on Earth. So it's a matter of acting with urgency in, in every type of industry, and not just as entrepreneurs, but as consumers. Ken Caldera. There's a postdoc in my group who went to a local supermarket and bought some mussels and basically dissolved them in a strong base, and there was a bunch of plastics that floated out of them. And so it's, plastics are definitely in the food chain. And um, you know, I, I agree that improved technology is part of the answer. But we don't, one of the things, if you think of, you know, we put lead in gasoline, or you know, people put lead in gasoline. They didn't know what it did in the environment. It turned out to damage children's brains. We burned fossil fuels without knowing what CO2 would do to, to our environment, and now we're putting all these plastics into the environment, and we don't really know is eating mussels with plastic in it, is that harmful to us, or is that okay to do, or, you know, that, uh, but, you know, we're, we're transforming our planet in substantial ways without having any understanding of what the long-term consequences will be. This seems like we're playing this game of whack-a-mole. There's thalates and parabens and microbeads, and, you know, it's like they're kind of weird. And those are successful stories of things that have been banned pretty quickly. I mean, 2015, Obama signed a law about microbeads. They banned of 2018. But, Sarah, are we really just kind of playing whack-a-mole? It's like every time you, we think we've solved one toxic issue, there's a couple more that pop up. I don't know that I would characterize it as whack-a-mole. I think you know we're constantly learning about new contaminants of emerging concern, um, the most recent of which is microfibers. Um, they have developed uh, filters that you can put in washing machines to prevent those from going into the environment. I think the way I would characterize it is we have to be constantly vigilant. On the one hand, we're innovating new technologies at a pace which was previously unimaginable. And on the other hand, we have to keep pace with our um, environmental and public health protection innovation so that those technologies can continue to monitor and understand and then protect us from any risks and harms that arise. Um, we're, because we're constantly seeing new things that come up. And um, I think we need to embrace that as our society is rapidly evolving. So must our environmental and public health protections. If you're just joining us, we're talking about ocean health and climate at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Sarah Amanzade, Commissioner of the California Coastal Commission, Ken Caldera, climate scientist at Stanford, and Daniela Fernandez, founder and CEO of the Sustainable Ocean Alliance. We're going to do a lightning round. Uh, true or false for our guests, uh, starting with Sarah. True or false, you <laughs> frown on the notion that technology can save the oceans? I can only say true or false? True or false? False. Uh, Ken Caldera, the United States should conduct carefully controlled experiments of enhanced alkanization, a process that could reverse ocean acidification. Yes. Uh, also, Ken Caldera, the United States should test other kinds of geoengineering as a hedge against runaway climate destabilization. Do I have to answer that question? But <laughs> Ken's questions the, are yeah, so much yeah, harder. Yeah, really. Um, at small scale. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't a yes you. or no, but I don't want to get... Fine. Uh, okay. Daniela Fernandez, uh, true or false, manufacturing a paper bag requires about four times as much water as a plastic bag. False. 
also, Daniela, uh, fertilizers and other chemicals used in tree farming and paper manufacturing can cause acid rain and harm waterways. Perhaps. <laughs> uh, uh, association, I'm going to mention, uh, mention something, and you are going to mention, uh, our guests will say the first thing that pops into their mind uh, with unfiltered, with complete uh -oh. uh, abandon. I'm putting my um, filters on. <laughs> I just want to note, too, that my fellow guests did not follow the true-false rule, so I, now I feel uh, equally empowered. empowered. There you go. Do. Right. It's all, <laughs> you should. The wheels are coming off of this whole thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Ken Caldera, what comes uh, to your mind when I say efforts to create giant vacuums to suck plastic pollution out of the ocean? Crazy. <laughs> Daniela Fernandez, U.S. Navy sonar. Technology. <laughs> Sarah Amenzade, the idea that cows should be fed seaweed to reduce their methane emissions. Distracting. <laughs> <laughs> Daniela Fernandez, the Clean Water Act. Important. Ken Caldera, your favorite ocean movie. I pass. What? <laughs> I don't know what's my favorite ocean movie. How can an ocean guy not have a favorite ocean <laughs> movie? Sarah Amenzade, the worst ocean <laughs> film ever. Uh, yeah, can I do my go. favorite? There, she can, What's I didn't favorite? do my favorite. Maybe I can do the worst one. Okay, I'll do my favorite. <laughs> um, the Little Mermaid. <laughs> Ken Caldera, no, you have I'm a worst? I'm stuck on the worst one. I don't know. Can I say The Day After Tomorrow? That's not really an ocean movie, but it's still one of the worst. <laughs> ocean was a character. Yeah. We, heard water, we heard a lot of Waterworld out in the audience. Waterworld. I was um. going to say Waterworld, but that seemed too obvious. <laughs> Last one. Uh, Daniela, your favorite ocean <laughs> heroine. Favorite. Yeah, your favorite ocean character. Character. Penguin. There you go. Let's give them a round of applause. Yeah, where's Ariel? No, no love for Ariel. Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. You're listening to a conversation about sustainability and the seas. This is Climate One. Coming up, some bright spots on the ocean's horizon. I think that if we can find ways to sustainably use the ocean, and have industries and communities that are invested in the health of the ocean, then we will be more motivated to protect it. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. We're talking about the oceans and climate change with Sarah Amanzade, Commissioner of the California Coastal Commission. Ken Caldera, a climate scientist with the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford and Daniela Fernandez, founder and CEO of the Sustainable Ocean Alliance. I'm Greg Dalton. Sea level rise is obviously one of the greatest risks when it comes to life near the ocean, but it's also an opportunity for innovation, as Daniela Fernandez explains. There's actually a big area for data collection in the ocean. Um, we've collected more data in the last two years than in the history of the ocean space, which when you think about that, you know, we know more about space then we know about what's going on in the ocean. So mm -hmm. there's definitely a lot of opportunity for exploration, understanding you know, the, the deep sea or floor, not for mining purposes, but for rather just understanding the creatures that exist and that are living there. Um, there's also opportunity to better understand you know, the people that are experiencing these problems firsthand. Um, there's 
you know, when I find myself in the, you know, at Davos or in sitting with uh, a lot of these, you know, heads of state or high-level individuals, I ask myself and I ask them, like, are you listening to the people that are experiencing these problems on the ground? And that's something that for us at our organization we do with our young leaders. You know, we, we don't come to them and say to them, this is the silver bullet to solve all the ocean problems. Now go and do it. You know, go sign this petition. But rather we say to them, what are your passions? What are your interests? You know, how can we support you in your ideas and tell us what's happening in your local community? Because we stopped listening. And if we're trying to tackle these problems with models being put together in a data center instead of getting data from the people on the ground that are in developing communities that are experiencing sea level rise, are experiencing these horrible storms more so than we are. I mean, we're so privileged to see all the news and see all the CNN pop-up alerts and then to just you know feel a little bit of sadness and pity and then go on with our lives. It's just not fair. So I think it's honestly a matter of understanding what's going on in local communities and, and listening to the people that are being affected by these problems. Can sure. I say yeah sure. can I say one thing on innovations to address sea level rise? The most innovative thing we can do to address sea level rise is nature-based solutions, is to restore our coastal habitats. We've lost 90% of our wetlands here in California and wetlands can be some of the most effective buffers to sea level rise and and more much more effective than um, coastal armoring. Similarly, in Florida, our mangroves really protect those areas. So I would just say, and when we're thinking about innovation in um, to address sea level rise, and this is where I don't go down the technology road, I sort of return to nature and how can our um, ecosystems protect us from, from the impacts that we know are coming. <clears throat> um, Daniela Fernandez, when you talk about those people impacted on the ground, I think of subsistence fishermen in places like Indonesia, where once the coral collapse, there's people who rely on catching a fish for dinner, and that feeds them. And what happens to those, those cultures and those economies when coral, you know, the, the foundation of the food chain collapses, and those people are just living on, you know, basically day to day? Yeah, three billion people depend on fish as their primary source of protein. So when that goes, just imagine the amount of malnutrition that is going to take place. And so obviously it's a problem. And you know, just to give another example of a technology solution, uh, one of our company's safety net technologies is attaching these electromechanical devices. So think of them as, as flashlights to fishing nets. And fish see light differently. So you know, if half of the room you know, sees yellow in a better way and you can swim towards it, and the other half of the room sees red and you don't like red, you swim away from it. So they can change the wavelength of these flashlights so that fish can either you know, come towards the fishing nets or away. And they can decrease the, the catch of the wrong fish by 90%. Right? So when you're thinking about you know, technological solutions and if it's simple as attaching a device to a fishing net and then teaching this, these fishermen on the ground how to use them, you know, I think that is a, an absolute need and necessity right? to not only uh, provide this technology but also to be on the ground and talking to the fishermen and helping them understand how this can serve them. Ken Caldiar, what are some real bright spots in the oceans? What are some good stories? Good stories. But one, my brother, this is a sm kind of a smaller story, but my brother um, lives in Fiji, and actually the, what was a coral reef out in front of him got destroyed because of the sugarcane sediments going into it, but that's not the good story. The good story is in the next, <laughs> uh, the next village over. Um, the, 
the uh, bay was fished out and people were like fishing harder and longer and catching <coughs> less and less. And there was a Peace Corps person who talked to them about protected, marine protected zones and the, they didn't do anything when the Peace Corps worker was there, but after the Peace Corps worker left, the village itself decided to protect its bay and they have a no fish zone and people are now just allowed to fish around the outside of it. And I think, while it's a small scale, I think it's an example that when you do have controlled access and a limited number of players that people can cooperate and improve things. And there's also a book by um, Scott Barrett who, about, um, and it's called Environment and Statecraft, and he lists uh, case study after case study of successful environmental, uh, you know, uh, either no fish zones or limited fish zones. And, and uh, you know, and so there have been successes in the past, but they're usually in places where there's a relatively small number of actors and they can control access to that area. Sarah Amanzade, bright stories in the ocean. Yeah, I'm glad Ken mentioned marine protected areas. Um, those are definitely hope spots, um, as Sylvia Earle calls them. And um, they're places where fishing is limited so that our marine life can um, be resilient and can sort of rebound from all the impacts that it's experiencing. Um, we have a phenomenal network of marine protected areas here in California, and there are marine protected areas around the world, which are enforced to varying degrees. Um, I really do see aquaculture as a bright spot. There's a really phenomenal project on the East Coast called the Billion Oyster Project. And as I mentioned, we have a lot of aquaculture here in California. I think that if we can find ways to sustainably use the ocean and have industries and communities and cultures that are invested in the health of the ocean, then we will be more motivated to protect it. Um, so I'm really excited by that. And also, I just love seafood. So I, I you know, I, I look at, um, I look at those and I really do see um, ecosystem restoration and habitat protection as a true bright spot. It's incredibly exciting to me to see that our natural habitats can serve as our, as our best defense from sea level rise impact. So I think looking across at our communities and our ecosystems, that really gives me a lot of hope um, for the ocean, despite all the climate impacts that we are already experiencing. Daniela Fernandez, uh, what seafood do you eat and how do you choose it wisely? I'm vegan. Okay. okay. <laughs> Uh, Ken Caldera? <laughs> well, I do eat seafood, but I do like the Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood card and try to abide by it. Sarah, anything else other than that, what to look for? Marine Stewardship Council. It's kind of confusing. You go to the yeah. supermarket these days, there's 16 different labels and shades and colors and little icons. Seafood Watch is great, and they even have an app. Um, I'm a huge Dungeness Crab fan, um, so that's how, one of the seafoods that I like to eat, and it's local. If you're just joining us, we're talking about oceans at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Sarah Amanzade, Commissioner of the California Coastal Commission. Ken Caldera is a climate scientist with the Department of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science. And Daniela Fernandez is founder and CEO of the Sustainable Ocean Alliance. We're going to go to your audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Yeah, hello. My name is Russ File. I'm a geologist by academic training and a career in oil and gas and environmental consulting and financial IT. So complex background. But my question for, I think, Ken and Sarah is going to be, how well do we truly understand ocean chemistry? And what's motivating that question is we have an extreme example of the past in the Paleozoic and Mesozoic where we see huge organic carbon sinks in the limestones of the 
Canberra Art of Ishin and Mississippian. So what is preventing the oceans today from forming the same carbon sinks that they have in the past? Thank you, Ken Caldera. Yeah, so um, first of all, I think the chemistry of the ocean is very well understood. What's not so well understood is the biological response to that chemistry. And yes, there have been huge organic carbon deposits in the oceans over time, but if we look at the rate at which we're emitting fossil fuels, today we're emitting fossil fuel CO2 at roughly 100 times, or maybe 50 to 100 times what is coming out of volcanoes and what's coming from weathering of organic carbon. And so if we were just doubling natural fluxes, we could think that natural processes would take care of the problem. But when we're 50 or 100 times over what nature's injecting into the system, it's just overwhelming the natural capacity to buffer and, and get rid of the excess CO2. Next question, welcome. Hi guys, my name is Matt Moskal, I'm from Colorado. I'm wondering, and I'm hoping each one of you could answer this question individually, um, if you could choose between public policy and private market innovation um, as far as solutions to ocean problems, which would you choose and why? Daniela? Yeah, it, it's not either or. It's honestly, you have to have public partner, private partnerships. Um, one specific governmental leader that I admire immensely, and I think it's a role model for the world, is um, the EU Commissioner Carmen Novella. Um, so he heads the uh, the EU fisheries um, policy, and and it's been so refreshing to see a public leader, you know, truly come together with with technology, with innovators, with corporate leaders, and have a seat at the table and talk about these problems, right? Because if we're going to have technology be scalable, we need to have subsidies, we need to have tax breaks, we need to really um, build the ecosystem of change that is required. And you can't do that by having only technology. You really need to have the right policies in place, the right um, economic uh, incentives to be able to, you know, build build this ecosystem system of change. So it truly is a partnership. Sarah? Yeah, I would say if I had to choose, um, I would choose public policy. There's a lot of innovation and promise um, from the private sector to deliver needed solutions at scale. Um, but it can leave people out. The private sector can leave people out. And if we if we approach public policy in the right way, um, it can hopefully benefit and protect all of us. Yeah, some of the most vulnerable areas to sea level rise are the, are the low-lying, poor areas that exactly. um, are at risk of being uh, abandoned. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, Jennifer Savage, Surfrider Foundation. Um, Daniela, you spoke about privilege. And Sarah, I know the Coastal Commission recently passed an environmental justice policy. And Greg, you just, in fact, mentioned about sea level rise impacting poor communities at a, a greater um, pace than, than privileged communities. And so my question is, where do you see the role of social equity in addressing climate change solutions and sea level rise? Yeah, I, mean, I can just speak to that briefly. I mean, I think it has to be at the center of what we do and not just sort of a, a side project. I think we have to be inclusive in the way that we approach and think about climate change impacts to the coast and ocean. And I think communities, all communities, especially disadvantaged communities, have to be at the center and at the forefront of every solution that we're thinking about. I think if we do approach coastal issues from an elitist perspective or trying to preserve you know, the, the primo spots and the sort of elite spots along the, the coast, then we're really failing. It has to be, um, we have to approach it in such a way that we're, we're thinking about the whole and we're thinking about 
all people. Danielle, do you want to get in on that in terms of the equity issue? Yeah, I think it's, it comes down to giving people a seat at the table. And uh, what we need to do is to make sure that the right people are in these decision-making rooms, whereas many times you have people that have a basic understanding of what you know, lower-income communities need but don't, haven't experienced what that what inequality means. Um, so, you know, truly getting, you know, younger people or just indigenous people or island nations in the room and making sure that we talk to them about what their needs are and if they are ecological changes that are happening, understanding how we can best support them. Uh, Sarah, I want to ask you about visualizing rising seas, because I think rising seas is so hard to visualize, and that may help us understand. So tell us about some things that are being done to help us envision things that are just hard to, to see. Yeah, well, I touched on it earlier, but there's a, um, an effort called the King Tides Initiative. And during the month, winter months, we see our highest tides of the year. And it's an opportunity to visualize exactly what a, a rising sea or an extreme weather event will do to our favorite road, our favorite beach, our favorite access area. And we encourage people to um, take photos and upload them. And I've seen them frequently used um, in government presentations and in coastal planning efforts. Um, that's an initiative of the of the Coastal Commission and one of my favorites. And then there are numerous um, sort of mapping exercises where we can view inundation and what the impacts will be to infrastructure, like SFO, for example, here in San Francisco. Um, there are a lot of really phenomenal art projects as well. I think in Miami, there's a project where they're sort of mapping where the rising sea will intersect with the with the community. So I think arts and um, imagery and ph photography have a big role to play in helping us visualize, it's not just science. Sarah, the red tides were a, uh, a big issue in the recent uh, election in Florida. You know, the toxic algal, algal blooms is something we haven't touched on. That's, that's an issue for freshwater, the Great Lakes. It's also an issue for saltwater. Um, that's where we saw a Florida Republican uh, campaign on that issue. So tell us about the politics of, of that. Yeah, I think um, as as dire and sometimes depressing as uh, climate change impacts can be, um, they can also make problems more visible. And I think toxic algal blooms are an example of that. Um, I think if we can see a problem, then we can solve it. And that's an instance when uh, warming temperatures combined with um, nutrient flows and um, pollution flows causes these blooms, these outbreaks of toxic algae, which are unhealthy, as the name describes. So I think the climate change is intensifying our environmental problems. And I think although that is um, causing alarm, it is also bringing new partners to the table and unlocking the potential for bipartisan solutions. And we've seen that in Florida with toxic algal blooms. We've seen that a Florida congressperson is campaigning on this issue. Republican. Be yep. Republican, um, because it's incontrovertible. It's visible. And I think we're seeing that with a lot of climate change issues, whether it's sea level rise, whether it's impacts to our coral reefs. These problems are now right in front of us. And I think if we all do our jobs correctly, we can use that to really hold our leaders to account and take action on these issues. So, I mean, I hate to say that, but maybe it's, it has had to get worse before it could get better. But at least the, the potential silver lining is that the fact that these problems are becoming so visible and undeniable um, maybe can unlock some bipartisan action and leadership. 
Ken Caldera, uh, perhaps not as economic, but, but uh, majestic to a lot of children who've enjoyed uh, exploring tide pools. The sea stars are having trouble these days. You know, is there a climate correlation and what's happening to the, sa the sad sea stars? Well, um, ocean acidification, especially in the larval stages, echinoderms, of which sea stars are an example, uh, have when they're juveniles, they float around and they have little calcium carbonate uh, skeletons that are uh, eroded by the increasing ocean acidification. And it's really, it's a kind of thing where we just don't know uh, over time, you know, we're interfering with the, these ecosystems in important ways and in unknown ways. And we don't know whether, I mean, the sea urchins, the mollusks, the, the, the sea stars. And, you know, it, it's impossible in the lab to do an experiment on entire ecosystems. And so we're interfering with these ecosystems and we really don't know how it's going to end up. The 2020 uh, budget put forward by the Trump administration for NOAA uh, cuts the budget by 18 uh, percent. Ken Caldera is, you know, how is NOAA faring under the current political is so much it's so important. The National Weather Service, it's a huge part of the Department of Commerce, uh, something we take for granted, but we rely on in so many ways. Well, I mean, even before proposed budget cuts, ocean research has been like the ugly stepchild of the, of the, you know, there's so little ocean research going on that any, you know, we should be looking at giant increases in research because we're perturbing, this covers 70% of our planet. We're interfering with it in profound ways. Things are happening to the ocean that haven't happened for hundreds of millions of years. And, and we have no idea what the long-term outcome of what we're doing will be. So we, we should try to understand what we're doing before we do it. Daniela, end us on an upbeat note. <laughs> an upbeat note. Uh, bring us up. <laughs> Where do you see hope and optimism? There's hope in, in all of us in this room. I mean, just the fact that you're here listening to this conversation gives me hope and that people are finally paying attention. I think that we all have to act with fearlessness, right? Because these challenges are so big that it's not gonna just take a political leader or an entrepreneur or individual to solve them, but it's truly gonna take collaboration and, and compassion for our planet and for each other and, and forming these partnerships. Right? I mean, even just look at this panel, right? I think it, it's so um, fascinating that we're all coming together from different perspectives but with the same message to you. And of course, you look at the next generation, right? I think that the hope is there that we're not giving up on this issue and that you know, people are out there in the streets you know, asking for change, but also changing their own lifestyle. I think that young people are lifestyle activists and it is up to us to make a difference and we have to start today. Daniela Fernandez, founder and CEO of the Sustainable Ocean Alliance. We also heard from Sarah Amanzade, commissioner of the California Coastal Commission, and Ken Caldera, a climate scientist with the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford. To hear all of our Climate One conversations, subscribe at our website, climateone.org. You also will find video clips and more. Please let us know what you think of our pods by writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. 
Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.